In uh, Matthew 11 and verse 11, we read a remarkable verse. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. <clears throat> there it is. Uh, John the Baptist, you see, is one of the most interesting, impressive and remarkable people in the Bible. And yet in Matthew 11, he seems to have a crisis of faith. Here's an outline of what I'm going to be speaking about today. Three different topics. The verdict on John, uh, the New Testament verdict, and then misunderstanding Jesus. Um, We'll skip around Matthew's Gospel, a couple of Old Testament references, which I'll get them to uh, very kindly to be putting up on the, uh, on the screen for us. But Matthew 11, we'll keep coming back to. So on your phone or Bible or whatever it is that you uh, read your Bible with, um, if you open it, Matthew 11, we'll keep coming back there. And because I want to teach you to keep reading your Bibles and uh, not relying upon screens, uh, I'm not going to get them to put those up on the screen. So there is a forced censorship so that you will read your Bible yourself rather than think that the Bible is written on screens. Well, on this screen. It is still written on your screens, isn't it? Yes. So such is language. All right, we start with the verdict of John, the verdict on John. Verse 11 indicates Jesus' verdict on John. Truly, truly, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's a big call. Not anyone greater than John the Baptist. And that comes from Jesus himself. That's not just my opinion or your opinion about John, but God's own son could say of John that there's no one greater than him. I mean, I wouldn't mind that rap on my CV or Wikipedia page or whatever it is. You know, Jesus says there is no one greater born amongst women than Philip Jensen. I mean, that's not a bad kind of reference to have. Muhammad Ali used to say, I am the greatest, but of course that's self-promotion backed up with quick uh, shuffle and a powerful punching. But Jesus says that John is the greatest. But what has been the verdict of history? When my elder daughter went to high school in year seven, um, you know, as a parent worried about what is happening as they start high school, she was studying ancient history. It was a compulsory kind of year seven subject. I studied ancient history myself, so I was very interested in her textbook, which I opened up, and there were the Greeks, there were the Romans, there were the Egyptians, but no reference to Jesus, no reference to the Jews. So I, I scoured through it, even had a little index, and it told me that there was one reference to Jesus, which basically said, I haven't got the wording correct, but it basically said, Historians in previous generations divided time up was between BC and AD because they thought Christ was the most important event in history. The most important event in history was now a footnote in year seven history. But history is very important. See, Paul Barnett, the historian and bishop and 
He wrote a book called Gospel Truth, Answering the Atheist's Attack on the Gospels. It's a great read. Anything written by Paul is always interesting to be reading. It's a great one, this one, about the historicity of the Gospels. I warmly recommend it to you. One that you can give to Christians or to non-Christian friends who are troubled by the atheist's attack on the uncertain basis of truth. For Christianity is based in historical character, historical times and events. It's actually an historical religion. Not meaning that it's an old one and in history, but meaning that it's actually based in history. Certain things happened and were recorded. And if they didn't happen, then the whole of Christianity is wrong. You can have Confucianism without Confucius. And you can have Buddhism without the Buddha. But you can't have Christianity without Christ. Christianity is not a set of principles or morality or ethics. A Christianity is not a religion of experience or, or, or spirituality. Christianity is Christ. It's about a person and our relationship with him. And that person became a man and lived amongst us at a particular time, at a particular place. And we have the historical evidences of his existence. Part of that historical evidence the events and the life and the work of this man, John the Baptist. The prophet who called the nation to repent and turn back to God, to whom huge crowds went out into the Judean wilderness to be baptised by him. The man who charged and challenged the degenerate king of the day and was beheaded for telling the truth about him. The man who pointed the disciples, his disciples, he pointed the disciples away from himself and to Jesus. Part of the historical evidences of the New Testament reliability is the reference to John outside the Bible. For Josephus, the Jewish historian of the late first century, wrote a history of Jews, in part to ingratiate himself to the Roman lords, and he records John's life and death in a following passage, sorry for taking time, but you don't normally know about this, people don't, but it's there in the historical records. He wrote, some Jews believe that the army of Herod was destroyed by God, who quite rightly avenged the fate of John, surnamed the Baptist. For Herod had John killed, although he had been a good man. He had asked the Jews to lead a virtuous life and come together for baptism while practicing righteousness towards each other and piety towards God. Herod feared his influence on people to be so great that it might lead to some uprising, for they seemed to be doing everything according to John's advice. Therefore, Herod decided that it would be much better to take the initiative to have him killed before he was able to cause some revolution than to get involved in matters once the revolt had begun and then be sorry. Because of Herod's apprehension, John was sent in chains to the aforementioned fortress of Machaerus and killed there. Among the Jews, however, the opinion prevailed that Herod's army was destroyed as a revenge on John's behalf because God wished to harm Herod. 
The account is different, as you would expect, from someone who doesn't believe in the Bible, as Josephus didn't. But the basic picture of John is so much the same. You can see from this quote that we're not dealing with with fairy stories. We're actually dealing with real events of a real person in a real place. Furthermore, many of the things recorded in the New Testament about John, what he did, what happened to him, are confirmed in public records like this. Like John, Jesus didn't live in obscurity, but publicly. I mean, Judea was a backwater of the Roman Empire, but it was a known place, a known time. And Jesus' actions, like John's, were sufficiently well known to be referred to by Josephus as well as others. But notice the verdict of history on John. It was the verdict of a righteous prophet calling the nation to repentance and paying the extreme price for his faithfulness. Well, what does the New Testament verdict on John look like? How is he described in the Gospels? What is he recorded as doing? How does the Gospel writer understand him? John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea as the last Old Testament prophet. He's in the New Testament, but he really is an Old Testament figure. For he's the last one announcing the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Back in Matthew 3, we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan River. Funny description of his clothing there, isn't it, and his eating habits. And it was, it's supposed to remind you of Elijah, who is also described as having a leather belt and wearing a hair garment. John came looking forward to the arrival of God's king. Somebody much greater than he, somebody whose sandal he wasn't worthy to carry or to undo, somebody who would baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire, somebody who would bring the judgment of God and the salvation of God. It wasn't until John was imprisoned that Jesus commenced his work, announcing the coming of the kingdom of heaven. So we read in chapter 4, And verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. John's outside of Sydney. Jesus has just moved up to Galilee, which is kind of Queensland. Um, He comes from an obscure place called West uh, Mount Isa. That's Nazareth, right? Known places, but obscure. From that time, we're told in verse 17, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is come near. That is, Jesus' message is exactly the same as John's message. John preached it in chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus preaches it in 4, 17. 
4.23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. This work Jesus continued until we read the end of chapter 9 in Matthew's Gospel, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. As the Lord of the harvest, therefore, sorry, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest fields. Jesus knew the judgment, the harvest, the judgment was about to come. And so praying to his father for more laborers, he sent 12 apostles out to multiply his work of announcing the coming of the kingdom. And we read then in chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent out are the following instructions. Don't go amongst the Gentiles or enter the town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the same message, John's message, Jesus' message, the apostles' message. And notice it was the same message of Jesus and John, the kingdom is near. Having sent them out, Jesus himself went on, as we read in chapter 11, verse 1, we've reached our text now, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. There may be 12 others doing the job, but he continued as well in spreading this message. But just as Jesus predicted and warned his 12 apostles, as the news of Jesus spread, so did the continued misunderstanding of Jesus. People heard the announcement, but they misunderstood completely the message, and therefore the messenger. Even John misunderstood Jesus. He misunderstood what Jesus was saying and, and doing. And so we read in verses 2 and 3 of this passage this morning, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? He pointed to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't doing what he expected. And so, have I got it wrong? Notice how Matthew describes what is happening. John heard about the deeds of the Messiah, the deeds of the Christ. He's not saying the deeds of Jesus. It's the deeds of the Christ. It was not the deeds of the Christ that he was expecting. He was expecting the king. He was expecting the Messiah. It's a word that hasn't been used in Matthew's gospel since right back early in chapter 2 where, where Herod killed the, the, the babies because of the coming of the Christ, the coming of the king. Matthew wants us, the readers, to know that the mission of the twelve were the deeds of the Christ, of the Messiah. But John is unsure Unsure if it is the Christ. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus in verse 5 answers John by reminding him of an Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah chapter 35. Say to those who are an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. 
See, with judgment comes salvation. Salvation comes with judgment. You can't be saved from your captor unless the captor is judged. You can't be rescued out of Egypt unless Pharaoh is condemned. Judgment and salvation go together. And Isaiah went on, then when salvation comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When it's read for you in your New Testament Gospels, you may not recognise it's Isaiah because you don't know your Old Testament well enough. But John will have known his Old Testament. Jesus was not saying, oh, check out Isaiah 35 verse 6, especially as chapters and verses weren't in the time of the New Testament. They were added several centuries later. He's just referring to the words. Quote the words and you're supposed to remember Jesus is saying, yes, the salvation is coming just as the prophecy had prophet, as the prophet had prophesied. To see Jesus for who he truly is, you have to look at the Old Testament. He was fulfilling what the Old Testament promised. He was fulfilling what God would do when the, came, when the kingdom came. Without my glasses, I can't really see you. Without my glasses... I can't really read my notes. I put them on and everything becomes clear. The Old Testament are the glasses. You don't know what's happening because you haven't put your Old Testament glasses on, John. Remember the Isaiah? Ah, now I see what is happening. What a good looking people there are here. Why do you have those lights so hard so that I can't see you properly? I'd be distracted. Now, John... Look, John, look, the kingdom is coming in the terms of the Old Testament, prophesied and promised. Rejoice and be glad. Salvation and righteousness has arrived just as you promised and prophesied yourself. But it's not just John who misunderstands. The crowds also misunderstand what is happening. They didn't understand John or Jesus. So Jesus explains John to them in verses 7 to 15 of our passage. John was a prophet. He didn't come as a king in soft raiment and comfortable palace. John was a prophet. And verse 9, John was more than a prophet. John was the final great prophet before the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, Jesus quotes from Malachi 3, declaring that John was the messenger promised by Malachi, the messenger who had come preparing the way of the Lord in judgment. Indeed, if you'll accept it, he says, in verse 14, John is the Elijah promised in Malachi 4, the very last chapter of our Old Testament. For there we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Old Testament ends with the promise of the coming of an Elijah to prepare the way, the way of the coming of the kingdom and the judgment that it will bring by bringing people to repentance. Therefore, John had a unique role in history, the last great prophet before the coming of the kingdom of heaven. 
And there is the difference between John and Jesus. For John was before the kingdom while Jesus brought the kingdom. And that's why Jesus makes not one but two remarkable statements in verse 11. For it's verse 11 I really want to draw your attention. It's a remarkable verse about a remarkable man. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The first remarkable thing is the importance and greatness of John. Even compared to Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, nobody is greater than John the Baptist. He is someone we really should pay attention to. But notice the second statement. Great as John was, the least, the very least in the kingdom of heaven is greater still. For John was still living before the kingdom of heaven, outside the kingdom of heaven, whereas Jesus was bringing the kingdom. And those least in the kingdom were greater than those who lived before the kingdom. Remember how I said that I wouldn't mind Jesus' rap on me on my CV? There is no one greater in this world than Philip Jensen. Well, actually, Jesus says, I am greater. I am greater than the greatest man who's ever been born because I am one who is least, I can assure you, very least, least in the kingdom of heaven. And if you're least in the kingdom of heaven, you're still greater than the one who is before the kingdom of heaven. It's an incredible statement to make about people, isn't it? So extraordinary, so unique, so important was the new age, the new age that John foretold and that Jesus was bringing. So important it is that the least citizen in the kingdom of heaven is greater, greater in the things of God, greater in this life than the greatest of all the men who had ever lived beforehand. Friends, this is an extraordinary statement of Jesus here. He is claiming that something greater than all of history is taking place. The kingdom of heaven marks off the fundamental change in all human history before Christ or Anno Domini in the year of the Lord. That which our New South Wales Department of Education has reduced to a footnote in a year seven textbook is actually what Jesus taught as the truth. Typical in our world today is the anti-Christian bias being taught to year seven. Those before the coming of the kingdom, those who, who, those before that coming of the kingdom compared to those who live in the kingdom, those living in the world of judgment Those living in the world of salvation, those born and living in this world, those born again and living in the world to come, the difference is that great, that the greatest human is less than the least Christian. 
an extraordinary statement. We can't make that, of course. That's like Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. But Jesus is making it because he actually is the greatest. But yet Jesus had to explain the coming of the kingdom for since John's time, the kingdom that he was bringing in didn't bring in peace and ease that was expected, but violence and conflict had been the order of the day. The violence and conflict that will lead to John's execution and that will lead to Jesus' crucifixion. Their expectation was shalom, everything would be sorted. Couldn't be further from the truth of the crucifixion or even the beheading of John. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. If you can believe it. Unlike John, who was having difficulty believing it, if you can believe it, John was the Elijah. If you remember the events of the life of Elijah in the Old Testament, it was constant attack, but little man, he, he had a terrible life. But Malachi 4 says, Elijah comes again, the last great prophet before the judgment of God and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And by misunderstanding who John was, they of course misunderstood who Jesus was. If John is the Elijah, who's next? You've got to look the next one. If he's the one who comes preparing the way of the Lord, who's next? The crowds didn't understand Jesus because they never really understood John. For John was the prophet who pointed to Jesus. John was the last prophet before the Christ. John is the messenger of Malachi 3 and 4. Then Jesus is the bringer of salvation as described in Isaiah 35. But Jesus saw his generation as far too fickle to hear the message of John or to recognise the coming of the Christ. So you get that wonderful little passage in verses 18 and 19. John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he's a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can't satisfy people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not know their scriptures, so they don't recognise what they're seeing. They don't recognise the great prophet. They certainly won't recognise the kingdom. They just see a judgmental wowser. Consequently, they don't recognise the Christ. Here he is right in front of them. The Christ that they've been waiting for since King David, who lived 1,000 BC. A thousand years they've been waiting for this bloke to turn up. Here he is, and they don't recognise him. They don't see him as the saviour of the world, the son of man, the king, who's going to rule the universe. They just see a friend of sinners. They don't see themselves as sinners, of course. It would be nice to have him as a friend. They don't see forgiveness. They don't see grace and generosity that he was bringing to sinners living under judgment. No, they just see he's a party-goer, a glutton, a drunkard. It's well known. It's a well known truth that if you don't like the message, you shoot the messenger. 
It doesn't matter what Christians do or say today, the world silences our message by attacking us. The world would prefer to believe the nonsense of moral and epistemological relativism than ever acknowledge the possibility of the truth of Jesus. But there's even more to it than that here. They don't like the messengers because they don't see who they are. For there's more to believing than simply seeing. A picture is not worth a thousand words. For every art gallery I've ever visited or seen in this world always has next to the pictures a little explanation in words as to what you're looking at. A picture is not self-explanatory. You need the words to explain it to you. And so here you need to put on your glasses. You need to bring the focus into 4K. You need to, to see from the Old Testament what you're looking at when you're looking at John. And when you see him clearly, you're going to look for Jesus. You're going to look for the Christ. And you'll recognise him because of what John said, because of what the Old Testament says. But you need to to look with God's wisdom to see and understand their actions. But there's another problem with their understanding. You also want to hear the message. In any communication, the announcement is only part of the process. The listening is also an important part of the process. It doesn't matter what I say to you today. If you're not listening, it is an irrelevance, isn't it? Jesus warned his contemporaries in verse 15. Whoever has ears, let them hear. There's none so blind as those who will not see. There are none so deaf as those who will not hear. And the warning is still the same today. It's not the wise and understanding who will know the Father, who will hear the announcement. It's the babes and the infants. It's the struggling souls who want to learn from him, who want him to be their Lord. This is the division between being in the kingdom of heaven or outside of it. Still living B.C., or living A.D. For it's not after Christ, it's in the year of the Lord. For there is no after Christ if Christ is Christ because he rose from the dead and is still alive. You can't have an after Christ. He's still there. That's why the non-Christian world hates B.C.A.D. That's why they've turned into this stupidity of before the common era and the common era, which is not common to anyone. That's the craziness. The Jews date the world one way. The, the, the Muslims date it another way. The Buddhists don't have dates. It's not common era. And it's strange that the common era happens to be exactly the same as the Christian era. It's a complete, absolute, intellectual suicide of Western civilization to be turning this language. But they're right because AD says, in the year of the Lord... 
which is so profoundly Christian. For it says the kingdom of heaven has come with Jesus. And so today, all around us, we have people living BC. And we have other people living AD. Which are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the testimony of John to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that it came with the violence and horror of beheading and crucifixion. We do pray, Heavenly Father, you would help us and our society to understand the enormity of what was happening in that time that we who may be living now can be counted as least in the kingdom for being least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest of all who live outside. And so we pray for your blessing upon our society and our community as we pray for it for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.